a three-week mini-series just uh, talking about some psalms. Last week, we, um, we hit on a psalm that was, in a lot of ways, what I would define as, as difficult, um, but hopefully also one that spoke to, our, spoke to our reality and spoke directly to us. But uh, this morning, we're going to, in our orientation, take a, um, a radical shift emotionally from where last week's psalm was to where this week's psalm is. And I, I will point out that in, uh, in evangelical or, or church culture, uh, a lot of times we tend to have music or art or, or things, um, poetry, that kind of thing, in, into which the psalms would, would in a lot of senses fit. We tend to have kind of um, the, the cramp in me. I've got no room anymore. Uh, we, we tend to have, have art that is one note and one emotion a lot of, a lot of times. And so, um, so it would be common in a Christian movie for the uh, for everything to wrap up nicely and to tie into a bow, and the overwhelming um, emotional sentiment is a place, um, maybe not of true deep joy, but at least a place of kind of kind of middle of the road happiness. And if you listen to uh, a lot of times our our Christian radio stations and the in the music that we have produced in our culture that tends to be sort of the same note. Um, and so the psalms are, are different, and in, in Christian art throughout time has been, has been different in that it has dealt rightly with the fact that humans have a range of, of emotion, and they're all created by God, and they all are in us, and they're a part of who we are. And so last week we did deal, I think, with a, with a more difficult uh, emotion. We de- dealt with the concept of, of struggle. We dealt with the concept of, of pain. We dealt with the concept of, of hurt. And we dealt with the reality that even in those moments, in those times, God is, is ever and always with us. He is a, a rock and ever-present help in, in times of trouble. But this week we're going, going to flip from that to, to an emotion that I think most of us, um, most of us want to experience more than the, than the other. And yet, I, I think maybe in, in times of walking through struggle, times of walking through pain, it'll make these, these kinds of emotions more sweet and more powerful. And so this morning, we're going to talk about um, what I would call uh, happiness. Um, we don't want to get, there's, there's a difference between happiness and joy, but I think even in this psalm, what is, what is being talked about here is, is happiness, celebration, uh, kind of that note. But I, I did want to note the reason we're doing these sounds with different emotions is to make the point that you have all kinds of emotions. You experience all kinds of things. You go through all kinds of stuff, and that is, that is from God, and, he, and it's given to you by him, and your, your emotions um, and your feelings are not sin. But uh, that said... I don't know that, that I could, it would be difficult to take the charge to preach a message like last week's every week. Um, so this morning, 
uh, we go a different direction, and I'll just read to you from Psalm 98, which says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered the steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises with the lyre, with the lyre and with the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So last week we said, here's the reality. Here's the reality. If you're if you're human, and you're human, and you follow Jesus, especially in this world, you're going to have struggle, and you're going to have trouble. And there's going to be moments where you feel like you are just barely hanging on, and you don't know what to do or where to turn. And we encourage you in those moments to turn to the God of Scripture and acknowledge that he is uh, our refuge, he is our rock, he's an ever-present help in time of, of, of trouble. And yet, I don't think that you were designed that you were made to live always in the valley of life. There is also in walking with God, and there should be in walking with God, there should be a mountain top. There should be, be moments where you feel joy, where you, where you feel uh, happiness, where you, where you feel these sorts of things. And honestly, I would not even say that they're necessarily mutually exclusive. There will be times when in the midst of, of the struggle, in the midst of, of the valley, God will bring you to a, to, to a place. And here in, in this psalm, we're being commanded to be joyful, which is an interesting command, I, I think. We tend to think of commands, and we tend to think of the things that God says as, as difficult. Uh, and it's not just the things that God says. The word command, the word command does not usually play well in most situations. Try it in your home life. Say to your children, perhaps, have I not commanded you? I sometimes say that to my children, just to be funny. Um, but I, I find to say, could you get me a glass of water, please? Usually goes better than have I not commanded you to give me, get me a glass of water? Um, I don't recommend trying it with your wife, but I can tell you how that, that would end, right? <laughs> not a good idea. Did I not command you to make me dinner, woman? None of that sentence would go well for you. You shouldn't use it. You'll be tempted if you think you're funny. I'm saying don't. That's just my recommendation. Have I not? But I think there's something funny about the sentence, have I not? Because we don't like commands. Who are you to command me? And then you should not be like, didn't the marriage vow say love, cherish, and obey? That's who I am. And then you're coming to me, and I'm doing counseling, and you're living uh, in your backyard in a tent, right? So don't do that. But I'm just pointing out that the word command, we're uncomfortable. We don't like to be commanded. If you had a boss who, who sent you a, a morning list of, of commands, I have got to move that. Sorry. Uh, if you had a boss who sent you a morning list of commands, that would not go well for you. And it is because we think of commands as something that necessarily treads upon our enjoyment, right? 
anything, anytime you make a command, my, my, uh, my children, even when I don't say that I'm commanding, they say, can you get me a glass of water? I get that whole sigh thing that they do. <sighs> you can't get your own glass of water? I get my own glass of water. Why do you think I got four kids? <laughs> Go get the glass of water. Right? You, you have a warped view of why we keep you around here. You, you get the water. That's your job, right? They, oh, so they view it. And listen, my kids are seldom doing, when I'm asking them to get me a glass of water, they are seldom doing anything that is world-changing. It's not like they're putting their heads together to figure out the theorem that is going to bring about world peace, right? They're playing video games or watching TV or arguing with each other. That's what they do. But somehow, my asking them to do something interferes with what they want. And that's how we view commands. Well, how dare you command me? Your command tells me to do something. To, and so we tend to think of commands as something that, that steals our joy, that steals what we're looking forward to, that steals our, 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 our fun, that, that makes us do something we don't want to. And what I want to point out to you here is that this psalm is written in the form of multiple commands. And not a one of those commands would seek to steal your joy, but rather each one would seek to make it complete. And, and what we need to understand is, is this. Though we have grown uh, because of our nature and because of who we are and because of selfishness and because of the fall and because of sin, we have grown to think that a command is something to steal our joy. And what I want to say to you is it's not. That a command from God the Father is something that completes your joy or can make you joyful or to give you joy in your life. And so that is why... The command here, and I think this command appears five or six times in this, this passage. Five times in, in this passage, though you can find other psalms just as short where the same co command will appear seven times. The number one command in this passage is to sing to the Lord. To sing, 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 sing. And it's given again and again. Now, in our culture where we seldom, outside of church, get together and sing anymore, that might seem an odd command. It might seem an uncomfortable command, especially when you talk about um, there is something uh, associated to, with American cultural maleness, right? When I say cultural maleness, it's not attached to actual maleness, but cultural maleness that says, I don't sing. I'm not going to... Um, the, the command to sing might be difficult in that sense culturally, but it is not a command that you would usually think of as something that is damaging or something awful. You could not go to someone and say, we, I'm fighting with this person. We had the worst fight. They're so mean. They're so awful. They're so this. Well, what did they do? Well, they asked me to sing, right? That doesn't, that doesn't work. The command here five times is the command to sing. And we can work out what goes along with the command to sing. But that is where I want to focus this morning because I want to point out to you that the command to sing is connected to this, this command from God that we be joyous and those things are linked together and that what God wants for us is joy and, and, um, and, and happiness at a level deeper than that is which is just superficial that he asks for of us and he commands us to do things and we need to reorient ourselves to this reality that the commands of God are not commands which take from us joy but they are commands that bring us directly to joy that in him we find joy so verse 1 says oh sing to the lord a new song uh Verse 4 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. I'm counting that as a, as a singing 
uh, as a command to, to sing. Uh, if not, it's definitely a command to make, make some noise. I like to think that the psalmist was aware that in his congregation that he was speaking to, he had some people who could sing and some people who couldn't. So <laughs> sing to the Lord a new song. And those of you who are really bad, well, keep singing, but it'll be like a joyful noise, right? Uh, make a joyful noise. Uh, verse 4, again, make a joy, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord with lyre. Uh, verse 6, with trumpets and the sound of horn, make a joyful noise before the Lord. These are, are the commands. We are made uh, these commands, which I think relate to, to, to singing. And then secondarily, musicality are given over and over and over. And so, uh, I already knew I was going to do this song because after last week and some other stuff, it's just, it was speaking to my heart. But then I, I, I started reading it and thinking about it and asking myself this question, why are we commanded to sing? Like, what is the, the purpose of that, right? And, and I didn't want to be superficial. Our family happens to enjoy singing. Our family happens to enjoy uh, uh, things from musical theater, Right, um, and this comes from from my wife, and then it comes into into Haley, and then Haley will become infatuated with a with a musical. Currently, that musical is Hamilton. She will sing that all the time, and then I get three teenage boys who also all the time walk around singing Hamilton because they hear their sister sing it all the time. But we are a a, a singing family, so we we sing. Um, but I, I don't think it's right to interpret Scripture in light of, well, God just wants me to do the things I already like to do. That's a dangerous way to view it. And it's, it's, a, it's a command even to those of you who are like, I don't like to sing. I don't want to sing. I'm not going, uh, going to sing. The question is, why? Why does God want us to sing? And that's, that's the question that I, that I began to ask. And so let's answer that, that quickly. I think, number one, God asks us to sing because to sing is to be like him, right? You know, elsewhere in Scripture, it says, be holy as I am holy. Um, we're told to be like Christ. We're told in the New Testament that the Spirit is at work in us to conform us to the image of the Son so that we might be like him. But do you know that, that around Scripture and in places in Scripture, it says that God sings over the saints, that he sings over creation. Singing is a part of the reality and the character of the triune God. The Father and the Son and the Spirit sing over creation. So that's, that's one, is that we might be like him, that we might be more like him in who he is. But number two is this. I think he tells us to sing so that we might remember his words, right? If, if good teachers know this, and they, and they do know, is that music helps people to remember, how much more so the creator of the human brain, who obviously wired it to be so, how much more does he know that to sing is to help remember? And you all know this. You all know this to be true. And I know that you know this, and I could prove it if I invited you up one by one to recite the ABCs to me, right? Because we in, in America all learn the ABCs set to music. If I asked you to do it like this, A, B, C, and I'll stop because I can get a little further, but at some point I'm going to have to sing, right? 
you know that you grew up believing that there was, there was, a, there was a word in the English, or a letter in the English language called elemento. And you thought that there was a word in the English language called elemento because when we do that, we do it sing song. We learn to sing it. Like, there's times when I can't, I could not do the alphabet unless I do the whole thing. I'm like, I have to, have to do it. But you learn that set to song. There's many other things that you know that are set to, to song. My kids went to a cooperative preschool. They had a cleanup song. Um, and it was interesting that the, the kids were conditioned by this song. As soon as they heard the song, clean up, clean up, everybody went and cleaned, right? It's conditioning. God, who made the human brain, who designed it to be as it is, who designed it as he wanted it, for some reason, wired into your brain this, this reality. And what he wired in is that you remember better Things, when they're set to music, we remember, that's why you remember the alphabet, that's why you remember nursery rhymes, that's why when you were young, many of the things that were taught to you were set to song. It might be why they say, well, adults have a harder time learning new things, which is probably true, but also, when you get into adulthood, you don't get to go to meetings where they're like, we're going to teach you the new formula that you're going to use, and they don't set it to a neat little nursery rhyme, because maybe if they did, you would remember it more. But here's the reality. Those things that are set to music, we remember better. I know this is a fact. I know that if you, there, is, um, there are lots of scripture memorization projects that are set to music, and people remember those better. We often say, well, I can't memorize scripture. It's too hard. I can't do it. But we know the words to songs, right? Most of us, you might hear them wrong, and you might know them incorrectly, but you know the words to songs. It's set to music. Here's what I think happens. God wants us to know and remember who he is. So he says, set it to music, sing. So what are we to sing? Sing to the Lord a new song. Why? He has done marvelous things. And he wants you to remember that he has done marvelous things. And one of the ways you remember the marvelous things that he has done is that you sing often of the marvelous things that he has done. And it's true that you might remember it in, in a cognitive sense, and we'll get to in a minute, but there's a deeper, uh, th there's a sense in which that memory becomes more ingrained if that, that, is, that is sung. Um, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into praise, into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises with the, with the lyre. He wants you to sing these praises. Why? Because there are things about him talked about in the Psalms. He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He wants them, the, 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 the writer of this psalm, inspired by God, is telling the people who received this psalm to remember these things, to remember that God has done marvelous things. In your dark moments, in your stressful moments, in your moments when you don't know what to do, remember, God has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. He wants them to remember, and he tells them to sing it. Interestingly, he tells them to sing. The command to sing is wrapped up in a song. So if they sing the song, which the psalm is, they will remember that they're commanded to sing, but they'll also remember that they have a God who has done marvelous things. And his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. That the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. They need to remember that. 
That's not, that's not um, tangential information. It's not extra information. It, it's, not, it, it's not unimportant. But they needed daily to remember that. The, the thing about the commands of God is I feel like they build and stack upon one another and they're interdependent. So he's going to talk about being joyful. He gives the command to sing, but his reminder that God has done marvelous things, if we would sing of the marvelousness of God, we would be reminded of the marvelousness of God. We would remember the marvelousness of God. We would remember that his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. We would remember that he has made his salvation known. We would remember these things, and in the process of singing and obeying the command of God, his very command would help us to remember and it would cause joy in us because we would remember who it is that we worship and who he is that we worship and everything he wants us to know about him. So we're called to do it that we might remember him. I think we're called to do it that we might remember his glory. Right? So it's not just to remember facts, but also his his glory. He is the one who has worked salvation. He is the one who has done marvelous things. He's the one, verse 7, 8, and 9, start to talk about how the earth is going to praise him. Let the seas roar and all that fails. You remember last week we talked about the seas. And the seas were a place of fear. And the seas were a place of dread. And they were, they were a metaphor for, for impending doom and evil coming last week. But here, he's even God and Lord over those right? The seas which were, 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 were fearsome, the seas which were scary, the seas which were, were the place from which evil came. Now, the seas roar and all that feel it. The seas start to dance, and they're dancing a song of, of praise. We don't get that feeling of foreboding. We get this reality that God is God over even the earth and the planet and everything that is in it, and even the earth and the planet and everything that is in it has to worship him because he's in control. The world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. Before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. It's a reminder that he's great, that he's glorious, that he's wondrous, that he is all of these things. And so I think we're told to sing that we might remember his words, but we're also told to sing that we might remember his glory. That he, his greatness, that every place you go and everything you see is an example of the glory of God. And we're told to sing that we, we might remember it. One of, my, one of the worship songs that I've really enjoyed over the last couple of years is the song Oceans. Which is not a, a, a happy, clappy sort of, sort of song, but it's definitely a worship song that talks about, about the oceans and, 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 and God's sovereignty in that and how God, God cares for people in that. But one of the things I really enjoy about that song is that it was written by Australian people in a church that is on the ocean. And so they looked out their door and they saw the ocean in front of them and they began to write worship songs to the Lord God and they wrote them within their context because there was the ocean and looking at the ocean, looking at the vastness, looking at the fact if you've ever stared into the ocean, especially if you've ever stared into the ocean at a place closer to the equator, um, we don't get this in Michigan, but when you're closer to the equator, the sun is much bigger. And so I've had the experience of standing on a black volcanic beach in the Philippines on the South China Sea and seeing the, the blood red sun set in the middle of the ocean, the giant sun. And so the word, when I think of the song Oceans, I realized that there in Australia, they began to write worship songs to the Lord God because they saw the ocean and they're reminded that the, that the ocean is a symbol of his glory. 
when we start to sing, it reminds us of his, his gloriousness. And so singing uh, uh, of how the oceans are his reminds us of his glorious. We need to find what is our context. What is our context of glory? Like this is, is, is Michigan, uh, and this is not even like, like country Michigan, because like, um, I, I hate to talk about this because I don't like snow post-Christmas, and I almost can't find the joint. But if it, were, if it were before Christmas and we drove out to the country and we saw the fields covered with beautiful rolling snow, and sometimes um, Libby's parents used to live out in the country and we used to drive by this, this one farm, and you would see the little baby calves in the snow and all of that mixed together. And it was always like, that's glorious. That's a beautiful scene. Um, it would probably be odd and awkward for us to write a worship song about the cows uh, on the farm and to sing in an urban, urban context. And yet, it reminded me of the glory of the Lord. There's a beauty to it. And there's a beauty to Michigan uh, that even when we don't feel it. Honestly, if you've ever driven up into the Upper Peninsula and driven along a highway called 2, Highway 2 runs across the bottom of our Upper Peninsula. The beaches at the bottom of, uh, of 2, the beaches that are on Lake Michigan, are more beautiful than any beach Florida could ever dream of having. It doesn't even come close to comparing. The glory of the Lord is clear when you stand on those, those beaches. Because, and, and we're told to sing because it reminds us of his glory. And I would challenge us, and this is just a challenge because I don't know the exact answer to this question. But in an urban context, when you walk the streets of Godwin Heights, when you walk the streets of, um, of, of Godfrey Lee, when we're on Burton Heights or Elger Heights or any of the other many heights, How is the glory of the Lord being shown there, and how do we sing of it? Because maybe we've forgotten in some of these places that the glory of the Lord is being shown there, and maybe we need to be reminded, and maybe singing is what we need to remind us, because there is a beauty that we might not notice because we've not stopped to think, and I think the Psalms remind us of his glory by reminding, yeah, that, that planet that you set your feet on, even it praises him. The rivers, the rivers, your Yes, you're alone in creation and that you have the image of God in you and that you can communicate with him and you can know him and, 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 and you will, for you alone is there a plan of salvation that, that involved uh, the propitiation and the, the forgiveness. Of, yes, all of that. But you need to know that even the rivers praise him. Do you hear him? They're clapping their hands. The hills are singing for joy. Singing reminds us of these things. So I would just ask us secondarily, what is the song that we would sing in our, our neighborhoods, in our communities, that would remind us of his glory here? And then here's the big one. This is, what, this is the one that I was, was thinking about. And it's maybe not any bigger than the others, but this was interesting to me. I think God tells us to sing so that we might fully engage him. I grew up uh, in, um, in Baptist churches. In Baptist churches, they have they have two sort of two sort of distinctives that kind of go together. Okay, one of those those distinctives is we don't do things that might make us look like other people who do things that might be sinful, right? So we were talking last night. Uh, 
D-Block, grew up in a church that was similar, not Baptist, but similar. And, um, and he was in college. They were talking about going to movies, and they said, and one of, the, one of the professors said, well, what if someone saw you walking into a movie and they didn't know what movie you were walking into and that movie was a bad movie? What would your witness be then? Um, I'm not going to dissect that. So many, so many layers to that. But they said that that, that sentence encompasses largely how Baptist churches from a fundamentalist background did theology, right? It's not good, solid theology. Really, it's, it's we're not going to do what the thing Scripture tells us not to do, sort of, right? Because there's all kinds of things we did do that Scripture told us not to do, especially according to our attitude and joy and other stuff like that. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do the things Scripture tells us not to do, but not only are we not going to do the things that Scripture tells us not to do, we're not going to do things that other people do that look like they might be something similar that could be if someone assumed or conjectured in just the right way, something similar to something that somebody might do if they didn't do things that they shouldn't do, right? All of which to say is there's like several degrees of separation on stuff that you don't do. So, coming from that, another thing Baptists don't do is Baptists don't dance, right? We, we don't dance. Uh, there's many jokes about dances. The, the insinuation, uh, the insinuation always was that if you danced, uh, dancing might lead to inappropriate sexuality, that dancing might lead to, to, to sexual expression. Um, that, was, that was sort of the... the, the under, if you dig into it, there's a, that's the insinuation in there. Um, interesting thing, though, is you weren't like really even allowed. It would have been frowned upon to dance at home alone with your wife. So it's problematic, right? So we don't dance. And the reason we don't dance is because we might be somehow tempted towards inappropriate, which that concern, by the way, in certain kind of dancing is appropriate. But degrees of separation, right? So we didn't... Do, dance. I say all of that to say this. So then what happens to your theology is that your theology becomes a head game, right? Christianity is contained within your head. It's contained within with, with what you know. It is contained somewhat in what you do. It's contained predominantly in what you don't do. We do not go to movies. We do not dance. We especially do not drink, chew, or go with girls who do. Right? Because we're Baptist. And that's how we are. Right? So that's what I, what I kind of grew up with. And the problem is, is now theology is a thing that is stuck in your head. And the problem is, is that if theology is simply a fancy way to say your knowledge of God and who God is, it's stuck in your head. It is a mental assent or a mental agreement to various things. Well, I agree to that or I don't agree to it. And so we have turned we turned Christianity or turned our version of Christianity into a list of don'ts and a, a mental assent to, to essentially this, the descriptive characteristics of God in, in this book. The problem is, is, that, is that this book, while it is meant to feed our head, it, it comes from a creator who made so much more than our head. Like, God did not, the, the Bible does not say that God made Adam, and then from Adam makes the woman, and stands back and says, I made their brains, and their brains are good. He steps back, he looks at them, and says, Adam, Eve, they're humans, and they're good. 
They're the pinnacle of creation. They're created in the image of God. And it is not just their heads or their brains that he is interested in. So when we sing, let me suggest to you this is the reason why is that God is interested in so much more than just your brain. Right? He, he is interested in your brain and he wants you to worship him in spirit and truth, but he made all of you. Right? And so he made your hands and your feet. Baptists are so Baptist-y about dancing. How Baptist-y are Baptists about dancing? Not only do we not dance with our feet, we avoid anything that might be slightly associated with dancing with other parts of our body too. So we usually do not clap. If we clapped in the church, it would lead to giant debates. I'm not kidding. It's sad but true, right? Well, should we clap? Is clapping okay? Maybe clapping sinful. I'm like, do we not even have the psalms in this church? Is that not a thing? Is clapping sinful? But that was, those are real debates. And you think I'm like, I'm like, I, I said to someone once, I'm like, uh, I'm sometimes bilingual and hyperbole is my second language. I'm not being hyperbolous. I'm not kidding. That led to a debate. Then you know what Baptists really, really, really super don't do? You might clap like this, right? On the twos, the fours. Uh, usually if, you, if you're Baptist, you haven't clapped in a while. You're clapping on a one, a four. Then it's like a two and a one and a three. and a, You're just mixing that stuff up. You might be moving your hands to call it clapping sort of dangerous because you haven't done it, right? I am convinced, right? People of color, you've been told that white people can't clap, that we have no rhythm. It's not that we have no rhythm. It's that we grew up in churches that drove the rhythm out of us. They didn't allow us to express it. Like, if you grew up in a, in, around, around rhythm, and you grew up around stuff, and you went to a church where you clapped, you did, of course you developed rhythm. We were told it was sinful, right? In, 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 in the Baptist witch trials, it would be the issue, like, that dude could clap, might be a witch, right? Because if you got rhythm, you've probably been out sinning someplace. Where do you learn rhythm? Probably a bowling alley or a movie theater. Because <laughs> we don't go to those places. We're Baptist. Right. So Baptists don't clap usually. But in the, in the, in the later years of my, of my Baptist church background, when I was like 17, 18, the church started to get slightly liberal. And occasionally clapping was allowed. Not like during regular worship. And by the way, if you're Baptist, those songs are so slow. How are you going to clap to that, right? Think of any song that Crosswinds does and imagine it taking about 10 more minutes to do. That's, that's sort of the pace, okay? So, uh, which I guess is good because if you're trying to learn how to clap, it's very introductory. You don't have to do that fast, right? So, so in the later years, though, Clapping became sort of okay, but only if you had a traveling singing group come by, right? Uh, which we often did, because Baptists go to church Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. So in a Sunday evening service, in a Sunday evening service, the singing group would come by, by the local college. Um, this is hotly debated. Other hotly debated, like, should we have them? Are they too rocky? You guys don't know what the word rocky means, by the way. Rocky to you means, are there lots of rocks in it? Rocky to a Baptist means, was there an offbeat? Did they use a drum? Did they clap? Was there a tambourine? Is it sinful? Probably, right? That's kind of the Baptist thought process on it. So we would ask, is this too rocky? Did these people rock too much? Did we like their, did we like their costumes? But occasionally, you could clap. So clapping would break out. Uh, 
terrible, barely structured, unrhythmic clapping would break out in, in those churches. Occasionally, that was greatly debated. You would definitely have a deacon who was for clapping. Uh, he might not personally have done it himself, but he saw no sin in it. And then you would have other deacons who were definitely against clapping, right? So, but clapping kind of came into like this middle place, you know? Like, well, we think it's kind of sinful, but we're not going to kick you out of the church for clapping. I say all of that to say there's another kind of movement, though, that Baptists definitely never got into, which was this. Not only do we usually not clap, even if, if, even if sort of the liberal, the less spiritual Baptists started to clap, we never raise our hands. Never, ever raise your hands, right? I mean, like, if you're in class, you can raise your hands. But if you're in class and there's music playing and you raise your hand, you might want to be careful. Raise it low. Because... Baptists don't raise their hands. And if you don't know what I mean, like raise your hands and worship. Like around here, when people worship, they will raise their hands. Kind of like it says in the Bible. I wish that man would raise holy hands. Uh, so people will do that around here in the churches we're used to, the churches we came from. You didn't do that. Because I'm not even sure the reason why on that one. Maybe it was too similar to clapping. Maybe they were afraid it was lead to dancing. Maybe they were afraid of B.O. I think that's valid right? But I can't even tell you why, but I know we didn't, right? Like, that's another facet of being, being Baptist. We have stuff in, in our head, stuff we don't do. They didn't explain it. You just get marching orders, right? And one of those things is we don't raise our hands. All of this to say is that you reduce then worship to a mental, to a mental thing. And even though you, you sing, the way in which they sing, it's viewed in the, in the in the, in, the, in the church, it's viewed as we do that singing thing so we can get to that important thing. You would never hear usually, usually an expression that the singing is so important because it helps us to connect the message. It helps us to understand. You don't hear that in the churches I grew up in. It was something that you did because traditionally we would do it, but it was filler time until you got to what was important, which was the preaching of the word. My suggestion to you is that what that does is it reduces Christianity to a head issue, a knowledge issue. And when you reduce Christianity to simply a head issue, to simply a knowledge issue, you are denying how God created things. And at the same time, you are setting yourself up for people who have learned about Christianity, but a lot of times never really experienced Christianity in a lot of other ways, not specific to, 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 to body movement and, and worship, but specific to the, this idea when you start to reduce things to the head, it goes further and further and further. And so what we got in our congregations were a lot of cultural Christians. They would claim to be Christ followers, but the thing about being a Christ follower is that the second word is follower, and it suggests that where Christ goes, you also must go, and because we were head people, we knew about where Jesus might have gone. Like, we had quiz teams and all kinds of stuff. We could win, like, a, like an Old Testament off, all that kind of thing. But the reality was this, is that people graduated from high school and they left the church and they stopped walking with Jesus because they knew lots about him, but they certainly did not know him because one of the things you do is when you reduce Christianity to something that is just in your head, what you are teaching is a history class and Christianity is not a history class. It, it, it is the, the living word of God spoken about the living son of God who is rose from the dead. He's a real person who created everything that is. And, and so Christianity is meant to be all-encompassing. And when you reduce it to just 
had knowledge, you get cultural Christianity. So that most of the people that I grew up in church with, uh, relatively large church, 600, relatively large youth group, most of them do not walk with Jesus today. Here's, here's, here's the point. God made us with heads so that we might know him in our cognitive senses. And he made us with voices so we might speak with him. But he also made us with bodies. And here's the interesting thing that Dave and I were talking about, about singing. If you really, really, really like a song, okay, like any of you, imagine like some of you are so self-conscious that someone might see you enjoying a song that you're like, I would never move when I was singing a song. But let's say I could get you into a totally dark room where no one saw you and turned on the song that you love. Most of us move our bodies when we sing. We start to dance. It's rhythm. Rhythm goes through us. Why does that happen? It's simple. It's creation. If the trees of the, uh, or if the, if the rivers are designed to clap their hands, how much more so is the pinnacle of God's creation designed to clap his hands and give praise? God designed music to, to function like that. And some of you aren't like us, like Libby and I, um, we like music and, and, and sometimes we're nutty. And so like, if you want to do something funny, you give us a sucker right before putting us in a car with music that we like. Because more than once in my life have I realized that Libby and I are singing duets to each other into our, into our sucker and looked over and watched other people in the car looking at us. Because right? there's something about it, like you, you dance. Yesterday... Uh, Yesterday, Libby was, was, uh, was driving around one of the, the little girls from, from church, and uh, a song came on that she knew. And she immediately started to move her body and do hand motions. She did. It's natural. Why'd you do it? Because her body was designed by God to do it. And here's my point. Your body was designed by God to give him praise. And you don't think of it like that usually, especially if you're like me and I grew up Baptist. And you grew up Baptist, I've already pointed out. We believed our bodies were designed to give God praise by standing as still as possible. That's not how it was designed. God gave us song and he wants us to sing so that our wholeness is involved in worshiping him. Yes, if your head doesn't understand who he is and his reality has not been put into your heart and into your knowledge, you're not worshiping in truth. But if all you have is truth and you never involve anything else, you might not be worshiping. And that's a bigger problem. So I think he told us to sing because God wants us to engage all of him. Now, I grew up Baptist. I'm theologically uh, pretty re reformed. I'm still not super out there on this, right? Like some of you, you grew up Baptist with me. You're like, I don't know, is he getting crazy? Telling me to ignore my head and, and dance like a crazy person? Nope. No, I'm saying this is like someone coming out of the, out of the fog of, of being Baptist, and it's kind of hard to get out of. I don't want you to go crazy, and I don't want you to forget your head. Like if you're dancing like a crazy per person and, you, and, and, and turning somersaults and, and singing stuff, that doesn't mean you're worshiping nor pleasing God. What I'm suggesting, though, is that if you know the God of Scripture and you know who he is and what he's done for you, he has called you to worship him with your full being. And that means that you might tap your foot. Like some of you, some of you like, might need to start, start to engage this, this, this singing to the Lord in this way by just singing louder. Sing out. Like you, This might start to involve your body by getting your mouth really wide, right? Loud, right? And then, like, you might want to go next level, so you're going to tap your foot. But if you don't want people to see you tap your foot, just get bigger shoes and tap that big toe inside the shoe. 
right? But you've got to start someplace, right? I realize that a lot of us, especially depending on background or people looking at us, like we're not going to get crazy. And I'm not asking you to. But I'm saying the reason I think God tells you to sing is so that you might be like him, that you might remember his words, that you might remember his glory, and so that your fullness of your being might engage him. If he wants the rivers to clap their hands, how much more does he want you, the pinnacle of his creation, rescued by his son, his body and his blood, the wrath upon Christ poured out, the resurrection so we might be rescued, made sons and daughters of the living God. If the rivers are clapping their hands, how much so we who have had the blood of Christ applied to us, who have been declared sons and daughters adopted. How much more? I think he wants all of us to engage him. So there's a reason, by the way. Um, like Crosswinds does weird things, I'll admit that. But some of the weird things we don't just do to be weird. There's a reason that we preach first and we sing second. And it's this. We want you to hear the message and then to musically apply the power of the message to your life so that you remember it walking out, so that you remember what's been said, so that you're responding to the truth of the word because we do believe that the word is central in all worship. We do believe the head is central in all worship. We do believe that you need a knowledge and a deep knowledge of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. You're not worshiping if you don't have that. But then we're going to sing it to help you remember it. And hopefully some of you will raise, raise your hands and engage your body. But I don't really care what you do. Tap your toe. Do some, but engage God in the fullness of your being in worship. Because he made you to do so. It's why we sing second. So that we might continue to revel in the goodness and the glory of this God. So let's go into that time now. Pray with me.